welcome to the Everyday Innovator Podcast for product managers and innovators. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping product managers become product masters. Listen and get ready to take your career to the next level for the doctor is in. Hi, this is Chad, your host, and this is where you make your move from product manager to product master. I'm starting to hear how this podcast is making a difference to people. Recently, someone prepared for a senior product role by listening to episodes I recommended and learning some of the concepts from my idea framework training. And she got the job and listen to this, she nearly doubled her salary at the same time. If you want to check out the idea framework that she used, you'll find it at the everydayinnovator.com slash idea. That's I-D-E-A, along with a special discount for listeners. There are a lot of places today to learn about product management, but my focus is a little bit different. It's helping ambitious product managers and innovators move into more responsible roles. Becoming a product master means having the influence you want and that you need to drive product strategy. The move to product master happens through this podcast and the training I provide. Now, organizations are striving to get better at innovation, right? I think we all see that. They know that their competitors are doing the same. However, not everyone is having success with these efforts. One more recent approach is using design thinking, but like any innovation approach, it has to be properly integrated into the organization or it won't have the desired impact. A new book addresses this, titled Innovation by Design, How Any Organization Can Leverage Design Thinking to Produce Change, Drive New Ideas, and Deliver Meaningful Solutions. I interviewed the book's authors to find out more. Thomas Lockwood has a PhD in design management and is a thought leader at integrating design and innovation into business. Edgar Papke is a leadership psychologist, author, and recognized expert in business alignment, leadership, and organizational culture. They decided to find out what highly innovative companies that were significantly using design thinking were up to, and if what they were doing would provide valuable insight into how any organization can use design thinking to produce change, drive new ideas, deliver meaningful solutions, and influence their culture to be more innovative, things that are certainly important for any organization that wants to be more innovative. You'll find a summary of our discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 171. I think you'll also find the discussion valuable, especially if you're trying to leverage design thinking in an organization. Tom and Edgar, thank you for joining the Everyday Innovator podcast. I'm excited about your new book, which is called Innovation by Design. And I want to talk about innovation. It's kind of a key topic around here on this podcast and how product managers can innovate to better and help their organizations. So why don't we just dive into that challenge? Why, why does it seem like innovation is such a challenge for organizations? I think it's a challenge for a lot of companies because they realize they can do more innovation but it may not be that relevant. So what they really need is better innovation. That's one thing. Second thing is generally it comes in incremental steps. And what they're looking for is new business models and new kinds of products and services and really to find out what these customer needs are and solve the right problems. And so in doing so, there's two biases that companies have. One, I think, is a bias for scientific um, solutions or scientific-based R&D, which is great, but not all solutions come from with a technical, um, you know, um, uh, innovation. There, there, there may be more of a service innovation or just an unmet need innovation. And the second bias is hierarchical in that um, companies operate in silos, and these different silos are kind of trying to out-innovate each other. And I think that you wind up with sort of a, a – uh, 
a bias towards solving problems and action as opposed to a bias towards uh, solving the right problems and actually creating meaningful innovation. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to just piggyback that on what Tom just said. And an element of that, that um, comes to the forefront is that the use of data and scientific methodology to collect information and data and then put it to use in innovation at the end of the day, you realize that that supports the creative process, not the other way around. In other words, sometimes what happens is we try and use data to drive a creative process as opposed to leaning into the creative process and the collaboration that's necessary for great innovation and um, not see that as being the primary element that, that drives the creativity, that drives the innovation that we're seeking. So we come back to this human aspect of it that um, is really at the core and what supports what. And uh, for me, just understanding that simple idea that uh, the data and the logic are there to support the creative process, I think that becomes a a key element. And I think an aspect of that is that it is a process, right? As you talked about that, there's a process in place that can help organizations be more innovative. And we have barriers in place of organizations and and silos, as you mentioned, Tom, is is another aspect of uh, the organization is just not working better as a system with each other. Mm-hmm. In, in your book, you talk about a uh, path to innovation is, is really kind of the con- convergence of, of two topics, culture that takes place in the organization and a tool design thinking that we've all been hearing, reading more about in the last few years. I'd like to dive into each of those one at a time here. Let's start with culture first. Uh, what, what kind of culture is needed for an organization to be more innovative or innovative at all? It's probably good to start with defining what a culture is. And at a high level, culture is how we do things around here. I think at the end of the day, when it comes to organizations of any kind, it's about creating success. So by definition, culture is how we, how we individually and collectively create success. And from that, then we begin to interpret acceptable, unacceptable behavior of what works or what doesn't work at the individual and collective level. So I think it's a great place to start. And then from there, um, what what is an ideal culture for innovation look? What does it look like? Begins with understanding the uniqueness of your own culture, and being able to interpret what lends itself to to innovation and what gets in the way of the creative thinking and uh, the innovation that that you're seeking. So it really is about first assessing and understanding your culture, and then understanding how to implement processes for innovation. Uh, that allow for the outcomes that you're seeking. And through those processes, you can actually influence the culture. Uh, And that's one of the, I I think, one of the more important aspects of our research and the work is that um, the process will influence people's patterns of behavior. And so in doing so, what you can do is establish different, um, different ways of thinking and mindsets into what helps people to be successful, what allows them to be innovative, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable, how to break down those, uh, those um, aspects of hierarchy or, or, or functional siloing that gets in the way of great innovation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that would be some of the culture aspects that get in the way there, like the siloing. You also said what, what aspects of the culture lends itself to innovation. What would be an example of that, like, you know, groups that collaborate really well together? What, what have you seen there in terms of an example? Oh, definitely groups that collaborate. I think that, that to add on to Edgar's comment from a layperson's point of view, like I'm not a culture expert, but I always thought that culture 
a simple definition of culture is the, the behavior people have, but also, and you can see that by how decisions are made. And so the aspect of culture that I think that's important for innovation and design thinking is a culture that wants to learn. And if it's a culture that wants to learn, it has to be a culture that will embrace change. And so I think uh, a bias towards learning and a bias towards change are, are critical. And I think those are probably two of the hardest things for culture. Um, I, I personally feel that the Great Recession that we had, you know, um, several years ago was maybe one of the best things that ever happened to innovation and design and design thinking because uh, many executives and CEOs realized that the future isn't going to be just reverting back to what they were before the recession, that times are changing and the world is changing and they, the companies have to change too. Customers are changing. Co-creation is changing. Um, you know, uh, people don't look at work as a lifelong career anymore. They look at themselves as free agents. It's all it's all changing. And so companies that will embrace change and that really truly want to learn and listen to customers and listen to all employees, not just the employees with high rank, um, that's the kind of culture I think that's, that's, that's needed and that, 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 that uh, is relevant for more innovation. Excellent. The way I often express cultures in terms of it's the norms that are, of the organization. It's what's allowed, what we do, and it's what we don't allow, right? The, the, the things that we kind of prohibit. And you talked about this, you know, bias towards learning and change as being positive elements of an innovative culture. You shared uh, earlier a definition of culture also in terms of its creating success, which is what an organization does. And I think that's where we sometimes get into this dilemma inside organizations that in creating success, we tend to lean on what has made us successful and where we slow down our learning about what we need to be successful in the future because that part is less known and that makes the, the learning and the change kind of more scary for us. Yeah, and that's double-edged. Um, again, we go back to the patterns we engage in. What's acceptable, unacceptable hinges back on our definitions of success. And so in decision-making and in problem-solving, um, what we can do very easily is establish a means to interpret and use success that winds up in our desire to have that predictability to get that success, we then limit our ability to take risk, our ability to open our communication to uh, to be more creative and freewheeling, um, and that we don't. Uh, we rely so much on the data or the means that we typically get success that then even inhibit our way to int to introduce new processes, and new ways to do things, because we are. Uh, in some shape, form, or another, being risk averse or not allowing ourselves to explore or um, or to take the risks that are necessary to create the change. Yeah, and creating that bias towards learning and then consequently embracing change is a key element to this. You guys said earlier that part of changing the culture is a uh, having a process that influences the behavior we want. What are other aspects about creating a culture that really does have that bias towards learning? Edgar, you're the expert on this, but uh, just from my, again, from my outside observations, it's executives set the tone. If executives are open-minded and willing to look at change and willing to learn and willing to really look at what's the real problem rather than just, uh, you know, status quo. Um, and in a way, a way, a way to see that is if you're in a meeting 
is um, and you're, you're you're really trying to do some problem solving on on, on an issue is seeing if the senior people in the room will speak last rather than speaking first. Um, and if they're willing to speak last and listen to what others have to say, and then, then add their, let's call it two cents worth rather than adding their, you know, expert vision guidance. Um, you know, that says a lot about a company and about its, its willingness to be open-minded and innovative and empower, empower creativity of its people. Yeah. In many ways, the executives do set the tone for sure. Uh, Edgar, what are your thoughts also on creating that culture? Uh, I'm going to go back to something I mentioned before, and that's understanding the uniqueness of the culture that you have, and then being able to, uh, through interpreting those pieces, um, be able to create the changes that you're seeking. So it goes back to something that you mentioned before, which is decision-making in of itself becomes an important aspect of it. Um, let's take a look at how decisions are made. Do executives have a tendency to hold on to decision making? Are they willing to let go of that and, and move it down through the organization to places where people can, in fact, create the changes that are necessary? Um, how well, how well do we engage in understanding how to best solve problems and find the right problems? Um, very often what will happen in organization is we we look to almost immediately look to the people that we perceive to be the experts to solve problems and so that we don't get all the various inputs of information and data that are necessary to not only uh, do great problem solving, also solve the right problems to discover what they are and uh, to be able to do that. And then there's these other pieces that are often overlooked that are part of a definition of culture which is how people are rewarded, how they compensated uh, for their efforts, how able are they to have a role definition that has enough flexibility in it to be involved in a way that goes beyond just, you know, doing my task, doing my job. So the role definition allows for some, for some flex so that people can get involved and have input and contribute, which is all a part of engagement. It's all a part of uh, people's sense of commitment to the purpose and mission of the organization and what it's trying to achieve. And so looking at it through, and, and in, in the book, we, we go back to the 12 culture keys that talk about problem-solving, decision-making, um, definitions of teamwork, and the clarity through which we achieve teamwork and processes that, and systems that we use to support um, various aspects of teamwork that allow for greater participation, uh, greater pursuit of knowledge, and and flexing of competency and 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 capability, and uh, and information, and also. I think a lot of times what happens in culture is that we don't look at the uniqueness through which people are being able to uh, openly uh, communicate, uh, to really express what they think, see, or feel about a given situation or opportunity. And um, a lot of people, I think, uh, aren't able to communicate as openly as and freely express as they, as they would like to. And uh, so those pieces, as you begin to assess those, you begin to see what the real true opportunities are to create shifts in the culture uh, to, to, you know, to really manifest greater levels of innovation. And starting with that understanding of what we have now for culture and then identifying where we want that to go and how, how we can emphasize that. Yeah, it's always a matter of self-knowledge, just mm-hmm. as we as individuals need to understand ourselves to create the necessary changes in our lives. The same holds true for 
uh, leaders and holds true for cultures. Well, we need to be able to assess who we are and have a clear understanding so that we can identify our desired future state and by by taking those two understand the gaps and mm-hmm. the paths the best paths to take to uh to get to where we want to go exactly and rewards are a good way to to help recognize the right kind of culture activities that we want to see more of and i've also leaned heavily often on the stories we tell and the rituals that are used right so like a, a story maybe an executive shares how a product manager extended their stay with a customer an extra day because they were on the brink of finding out something really important and came out with the valuable information and that you know might reinforce a cultural element of we really want to understand and connect with our customers. The stories that get told inside organizations can be used as a way of expressing the kind of culture that we want and, and emphasizing the good elements that happen. Thoughts on that? Well, also, you mentioned rewards here. Um, you know, the rewards don't have to be tangible rewards. I think the rewards we see that are really effective are just the reward of inclusion, just allowing people to participate um, in these type of problem-solving sessions and be listened to and, ex- and express their feelings and ex- express their beliefs. Um, that's extremely powerful, whether that's an employee or a customer or a prospect or a user. Um, they, you know, that goes, that inclusion goes a long, long ways. As well as that openness piece, then it goes back to letting people encouraging them actually to express their, their ideas. And, um, and so the openness isn't just a matter of leaders expressing what they think, see and feel. It's a matter of also encouraging and being open to hearing it. There's so much of this. And when you think about what Tom just mentioned in terms of inclusion, participation has to do with listening. Uh, and it's true. How well do we listen to customers? How well do we listen to people that have direct um, contact with and interaction with customers and have direct influence? And how well do we hear and uh, collect uh, and use then the insights that they can offer? And how open are we are to that? Uh, so it becomes uh, this idea of participation isn't just that I want to hear from you. It's just actually that I listen to you. And um that sense of uh, that sense of value that people get from from being heard uh, translates directly into their ability to want to act more enthusiastically and have a higher level of commitment. There's a higher level of trust, of mutual respect that takes place. That's excellent. You know, so simply asking someone for their thoughts on a problem you're having is a great way to start this, and you're showing respect and interest in what other people think, and starting to have open communications. Yeah, and then to just build on that, to actually listen to it and use it, mm-hmm. that gives people evidence of that. So, yeah, very much so. I'm sure we all have examples of that, too, and have seen that as uh, being a very positive influence in how we work with others. So some good information on the cultural element of this and a lot more detail in your book. We'll get back to the discussion in just a minute. This episode of The Everyday Innovator is brought to you by Product Innovation Educators, your one place for online training to make the move from product manager to product master. When you enroll in one of our online courses, it's like having Chad McAllister as your personal coach. In each course, you get video lessons, added resources, and a private community for collaboration with other product managers and innovators. And, of course, you get direct access to Chad, who will answer your questions and get you heading in the right direction. Past students tell us that concepts, practices, and tools are valuable, but the real benefits they gain are being more confident, 
increasing their influence in their organization, and generating greater success for themselves and their company. There are four levels of training to become a product master. Find your level now. Get started by going to theeverydayinnovator.com forward slash master. You're one place to become a product master. TheEverydayInnovator.com forward slash master. Don't wait. Get started now. I also want to spend some time talking about design thinking. And how does this as a tool, design thinking, help organizations overcome some of these challenges with innovation? I guess, you know, basically, how does it help organizations be more innovative? And we probably need to start with some kind of description of design thinking here again. I think design thinking at scale, which means that people are empowered to participate in in ideation sessions and problem-solving sessions, whether that's creating a new product or service or whether that's looking at how process uh, process improvement or onboarding processes or hiring processes or whatever it may be. Um, the main thing is, you know, in, in being inclusive about problem-solving. And um, I think the main thing there is to try to figure out that you're solving the right problems. So that's, that's the question of... Um, involving customers and involving even people who, who aren't that savvy of a particular product or service, but are, are smart enough to ask why and ask, well, why not? Why isn't it done this way or that way? That's why as a small little side note, I'm seeing a lot of um, activity in the market about using design thinking in sales organizations and several of the companies in our case study um, actually train their salespeople in design thinking. Um, and, and I actually think if you look at this from a product manager point of view, salespeople might actually have an advantage because they don't, they're not as savvy about the technological constraints or the process constraints or the functional constraints of what can, what could be. Rather, they're interested in what do the, you know, what do the customers really need? where I think the challenge for product managers is a good product manager is so savvy about all aspects of a product or service that they know the constraints very well. And so the hard thing would be to put those constraints aside for a moment and try to try to put yourself in somebody else's shoes, you know, walk a mile in your customer's shoes and try to figure out what, what really is the problem, what really would be some good solutions um, and don't, but don't be worried about trying to solve it from a technical point of view or a functional point of view during that process. You know, there'll be time later on to solve that part first to figure out what is it that you need to solve. Yeah, that issue of solving the right problem. And, and that's where design thinking starts, right? Is this notion of empathy. Yeah. A part of the model is truly understanding your market, your customer, their problems or unmet needs, and, and mm-hmm. then thinking about how we might address adding value mm-hmm. to meeting those needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so solving the right problems is definitely a key place to start and something design thinking can help us with. It does. And, and there's another aspect of this. Uh, when you look at the rest of the process of design thinking, you begin with that understanding the right problem. Once you have that, like Tom said, you, you go back to it and then you begin to solve that uh, with what you have available to you and uh, other aspects of knowledge or information and competency that you can apply to it. And then to be able to look at it through the lens, um, also something that Tom mentioned before, is that it's it's not as it's not sudden. 
and a lot of organizations are looking for a, a certain sense of suddenness in their innovation or something to show up that is the new biggest idea, when the reality is, is that it's a gradual process. Much like any learning endeavor that we engage in, it's a gradual process of creating understanding and insight and also of creating solutions in that manner so that we understand that not every solution that we come up with um, is, is, is the uh, ideal solution. Rather, it's a step toward that ideal solution. And to be able to uh, interpret uh, how well it's working and how to improve it so that that prototyping and testing and creating that loop of innovation so that you have a constant innovative process in play, um, I think becomes you know, part of that. And it does tie to something that you also mentioned before. In cultures, there's storytelling. And I think in innovative processes, you're doing the same thing. Every, every story has a, has a context and contextual inquiry allows you to go into that. And every story has a set of characters or main character, whether it's the customer or people that are using a process in an organization. There's a set of characters and there's a gap. There's a gap that le- between what they're doing and how to do it better and be more successful. And that's the conflict. And um, great, great storytelling and a great path to this is to understand that uh, in, in resolving that conflict and creating a solution, um, that, that there's a path to that. And design thinking offers a path. It, it provides a process to creating success. And uh, if you look at it through that lens, you see how much more powerful it, it actually is than just a business process. It really is. I, I like to accustom it to, to our own personal lives is that every decision we make and every step we take towards our desired legacy or end goals in life is a prototyping process. Sure. We're, we're constantly prototyping through our lives as we create ways to achieve what we want to achieve in life to get to our end result, to get to the end game. And the same thing is happening in innovative processes and organizations when they're doing it well. And uh, so far, I, I don't think we've come across a better design or a better approach to it than, than design thinking. I think many of our listeners, the everyday innovators, have uh, some familiarity with design thinking, at least in maybe previous episodes we've talked about a bit, in terms of applying it to a product process, right? Who's a potential customer? How do we understand their problems? How can we start maybe sketching out some potential uh, solutions around that problem, do some prototyping work, co-create with the with our customer here to come up with a solution that really meets their needs? And in the bigger context of how do we help our organizations be more innovative, where you're applying design thinking through this book and through your work, also in terms of how do we improve the organization as a whole, uh, the processes there, the systems, and really drive the culture towards a culture that would, would support success in the future, not just what we've done in the past. And that's an aspect that both Tom and I have gotten really excited about and uh, that we've been able to apply, uh, and that is that once you can understand uh, the elements and characteristics or traits of your culture mm-hmm. and the uniqueness of it and be able to look at it through that lens, then what you can begin to do is actually move it towards the place of your ideal culture through the design process. In other words, you can um, – and it goes beyond the words on the wall in terms of values and beliefs. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is actually looking at the traits and characteristics characteristics of your culture and how it how it operates and take that to you can actually design your ideal culture so culture by design 
And um, it's not just a matter of looking at it through the lens of engagement or whether people are happy or not. Now you're starting to look at it through all the influencers and uh, the processes and systems and means for which that you influence people's behavior. Mm -hmm. And so you can actually take this route and use design thinking to do and, and design your ideal culture, which is, um, I, I think, probably one of the greater advancements that can come out of this work. I, I tend to agree. Uh, I talk in terms with product managers of at some point in your career, as you move up towards more senior levels, you've gone from creating better products to now it's time to start creating a better organization. And and as product managers, we are, we have some unique experiences that make us better at that, frankly, than other roles because we work so cross-functionally. We see the organization more as a system. Um, I'm curious. So design thinking is kind of this big tool that we can apply and a really good tool and, and big, not in the sense that it's challenging or hard, a lot of fun to be a part of the process. But I'm wondering if, if there's a tool that listeners might be able to walk away with, you know, from listening to our, our discussion that they could start thinking about now, well, how can I do this one thing, right? Maybe a, maybe a key domino that I could start doing today with my group or with my interactions with colleagues to help start us moving forward to being more of a bias towards learning and, and change. Thinking about some of the chapters in the book that we had, which are basically tools. One is um, curious confrontation. Hmm. Let's be, let's be open-minded about being curious and being creative and trying to figure out the solution, but also let's not just um, patronize one another. Let's, let's be honest about, about this. Let's have some, some healthy confrontation around it. Um, a little anecdote on that. One of the, core values at Pixar is to always critique the work. And the way they do that, obviously, they're, they're making movies and film, but when they do a, a, a design review or product review, they'll sit in the audience and look at the screen and they turn the lights down low. And then when they critique it, they leave it that way intentionally so that they're speaking hmm. to the screen rather than speaking to their colleagues. So you're not looking at somebody in the eye and saying, why did you do it this way? Rather, you're critiquing what you see. So, um, you know, w w w em embracing this confrontation, but doing it in a way that's not not taken personal. Tom, I love the, the Pixar example because they, they also, I'm sure you've come across, they have this plus one approach to that feedback, right? And they'll, mm -hmm. you know, they'll say, okay, th that was good. How can we plus it? Exactly. Right? And, exactly. And they might plus a particular idea a thousand times, literally, in their storytelling or you know, process to get it to something that is so much better. Yeah. And maybe, maybe coupled with this curious confrontation would be the idea of co-creation. So, I mean, I, I was a product manager once in the skiwear industry. I was responsible for sleeping down sleeping bags. And, um, man, manufacturing would tell me what we could and couldn't do. And purchasing would tell me what we could, you know, what grade of down we could and couldn't buy. And I had a lot of constraints. But um, if, if, I, if I had those other departments uh, creating with me, and tried, tried to eliminate those constraints, but co-create with them, I think we could solve a lot more. And I, my, my guess is that in the engineering kind of functions in an organization are both a product manager's best friend, but also their, their biggest obstacle to overcome. And um, uh, I've, 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 I've solved some of my best problems by taking engineers out in the field with me and showing them competitive products or showing them products being used, you know, outside of the lab. And um, 
you know, I used to work for storage tech. We made these big, you know, mainframe computers. And the, the engineers would always complain about when we wanted to have really beautiful finish on the plastics and matching paint color from metal to plastic, for example. And they go, oh, you can't do that. It's different materials. So one day I took all the engineers out. I said, let's go to lunch. Well, on the way to lunch, I took them to Best Buy and we looked at a bunch of consumer products like cameras and camcorders and laptops and these people that make mainframes got all excited. They go, well, geez, I didn't even know you could make the paint, you know, come that close and make the finish be that good. So just, you know, co-creating, getting them out of their space and, and, um, and, you know, embracing, embracing their creative ability to solve problem rather than their bias towards already having the, the solution in mind. Yeah, and I think there's a great deal. Another anecdotal uh, piece to this is um, we've adopted, uh, very often adopted the language of brutal honesty. And there's a distinct difference between um, confronting through inquiry than brutal honesty and to the point that Tom just made. It's more of a matter of inquiry to approach it through that lens. In other words, if there's... um, if, if there's a disagreement or um, people are being rigid about how they're seeing something rather than just uh, to push a, to push an idea and agenda, rather invite a, a curious conversation about it to create an inquiry. After all, innovation is very much the building of one idea upon another. And if we're not open to the inquiry aspect of it, um, then that's going to become problematic in of itself. So something that anyone can apply uh, much like a great product manager would, is rather than um, be rigid and holding on to an idea, it's really about asking the questions and creating a form of inquiry. After all, that's where great design thinking begins with. It's that contextual inquiry, the, the ability mm-hmm. to empathize. And so seeing that all the way through the process of innovation and understanding that uh, becomes remarkably powerful. Those are great specific examples and good tools and just this nature of us getting more curious and asking the questions along the way in the spirit of wanting to create value for the customer, I think is it provides context around the interactions. And I'm sure there's many more tools we could dive into. I'll ask uh, everyday innovators to check out the book for those. I do want to ask you for an innovation quote, which is something I always love to ask guests. One of my favorite quotes is that says, the art of being wise is the art of knowing what to overlook. And I, again, I think we can solve, uh, it's not a question of having, an, having you know, an, not enough ideas. It's the question is knowing which ideas to pursue. And so this idea of what to overlook, I think is really critical. And not to lean too much on Steve Jobs and Apple, but I mean, uh, I remember when they first launched the iPhone and I was reading an interview and one of the... Uh, questions or one of the interviewers who were saying, man, you must be so proud of yourself and this company for creating a new phone with this, you know, interactive interface and all of this. And wow, you must be so proud. And, and Steve Jobs says, no, you know, frankly, I'm even more proud of the fact that we left so many ideas behind so we could just focus on this one idea and do it right. And so um, I like that quote, you know, having the guts to know what to overlook. And from a product manager, I'm sure you'll have plenty of technological opportunities for improvement and engineering improvements and having the courage to know which ones of those to overlook based on what would really be the best solution in the long run. So I like that quote. Thanks for sharing the quote with us. Yeah. yeah, Job has also shared thoughts about creating a great product involves saying no a whole lot more than saying yes and knowing what to focus on is very important. 
So excellent information, gentlemen. Appreciate the insights and the new book. Please tell listeners how they can find out about the book and the work you're doing and if they want to reach out and connect with you. Sure. InnoAlignment.com is our website. Um, We have a lot of information up there. Uh, There's some of the 10 attributes of design thinking organizations are on that website and in our blogs. I'm a big LinkedIn guy. I like to connect with people on LinkedIn and share information there. So that's my main social media outlet, that and Twitter. Um, Edgar? Yeah, the the same, uh, the website, InnoAlignment.com. And that's, by the way, is I-N-N-O alignment.com and um and also uh, the, to just uh, let listeners know that they can uh, through that website uh, contact us directly and not to hesitate to do that with their questions and thoughts and comments and ideas uh to just uh, feel free to do that excellent and i will put the links to your linkedin profiles and the business site in the show notes for this episode And also, I'll put a link to your book, Innovation by Design, How Any Organization Can Leverage Design Thinking to Produce Change, Drive New Ideas, and Deliver Meaningful Solutions. Tom, Edgar, thanks for the time. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. This was interesting. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again for listening. Find a summary of this discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 171. Keep innovating. Thank you for listening to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit our blog at theeverydayinnovator.com.